Hello everyone, this is Alicia from Call for Climate Reform and I have a special guest today. Her name is Christina and she was actually in two religious orders. Um, she's going to tell us her story and some of her thoughts. Um, Christina Bott and I have known each other for a few years now and um, it was actually listening to her stories that um, helped me to realize that, you know, there are a lot of similarities in abuse and that what's happening is uh, not not right. So um, thank you for Christina for coming on um, and for being with us. Um, can can we tell your location, like where you're at, or do you want to keep? Sure, it? sure. Um, so I'm in Staten Island, uh, New York, um, and the religious com the two religious communities I was in, or also well, one was in New York and one was in New Jersey. Okay, and so um, so the first order that you were in. Um, can we get like an idea of what time frame that would have been that you were in there? Sure. Um, I was in there, this is, uh, 2000, I want to say, I believe it was 17, it was 2017 around that time. Um, and I was in there for a couple of years. I left as a postulant. Uh, I had thought I was becoming a novice. They had led me on. Uh, it was unanimously voted, actually, that I was going to be a novice. And um, they even had, like, the, um, I guess you could say, like, flyers up around the community saying, like, when the date was and everything. And we were, like, starting to plan it. Um, and then pretty much toward the end, the day that I left, and the, it was interesting, the priors admitted that they were never going to let me become a novice. They were actually doing things on purpose to get me to leave. And the date was just, um, they had picked a date that was kind of farther along. They figured I would get, like, frustrated and then just leave. So that was kind of, like, the end tail, I guess you could say, of the abuse. Uh, instead of just having me leave, like, way before that, if they were unhappy with me, I guess uh, you could say. Even though I had tried to leave twice before that, and I was begged to stay. So it's, it's interesting. It's kind of, like, on their terms. Yeah. Um, they want you to leave instead of, I guess you could say, like your own terms. Because, again, I did try to leave twice. And the vocation director uh, really begged me and pleaded with me to stay. Um, that, you know, I belonged there and I should be with them. And, and uh, yeah. So it sounds like they had their own agenda for you. But they hid it from you, basically. Like they, is that, would that be correct? I would say definitely, yes. Because, uh, again, all along they pretty much made it like, and it sounded like to me that they really wanted me to be there. I mean, from the beginning, they were happy to have a younger person, and, and uh, they had different, uh, you know, I was helping out with different apostles and things like that. And they were talking about me being more active in the sacristy, and, you know, they had different ideas and stuff. And it just seemed after a while, uh, it, they really came to, like, me being left in isolation. Like, I would li literally only really be with anyone for prayers. Um, this is more towards, you know, I guess getting towards the end. I thought maybe they were testing me or something because, again, they had already, like, voted for me to be a novice. So I'm like, well, maybe this is something they do to, like, test you before you become a novice. But, again, in reality, it wasn't. It was that they just really wanted me to leave. And the issue came from uh, there was this sister. When I first started discerning, actually, I met. And it didn't seem quite right to me. But, like, again, when you first enter an order, you don't think sisters are going to make things up or lie. And she came to me, I remember hysterically crying, the other sisters were really mean to her, and they've always been mean to her. And, you know, she used to tell me all of these things, which now I know, like, a lot of it was lies, um, a lot of dramatics. 
And I found out later, um, Choir's actually said, you know, Christina, like, we wish that we can get her out, but we can't, you know, we, we tried. Uh, we, we have, you know, a list of things ending with you pretty much that you recorded things, and we really think she's a sociopath. Um, and we want you to lock your room at night, you know, just in case she tries to do something. Wow. We, but we won't, yeah, we won't allow her on your floor. And um, one, I remember one time, this is like, again, more towards the end, and my directress was in a meeting, and I had been going down the stairs for something, and she was coming up that sister. And she literally threw herself on the floor right in front of me, like her veil flying off, and she starts screaming that I pushed her. It's like this whole big oh, thing. And I went to the scholastic director who was in charge of the junior eight, and I told her, and she's like, what are you telling me this for? I don't care. Uh, so it was like, I, I just had nowhere to go. It was, you know, and I knew uh, when I had told them about what was going on with her, I had even told the director, I was like, you know, in the end, it's going to wind up being, you're going to keep her because she's the one that's final profess, not me. And it just got, it got crazy. It was all, it was literally like me versus her. Um, and that's just among the, uh, the many other crazy things that happened there. But that was, that's the most I think that stuck out to me besides the liturgical abuses that I endured the entire time there. Um, the most memorable one, I guess you could say for that was a couple of us were concerned because they were using glass for um, the, the sacred vessels. And we had spoke to them, you know, we even showed them in the um, uh, Sacramentum Redemptionis, you know, the general instructor of the Roman Missal, I believe it's in there too, about how you're not supposed to use glass. It's, you know, it's a grave liturgical abuse. And they had stopped using it for a little while. And then the Easter vigil before I left, I saw the glasses, the glass chalices out. And I'm kind of like looking. And I noticed during the whole Mass, like, they're all staring at me, the sisters. So I'm kind of like, what is going on here? I couldn't figure it out. And it was more towards the end. I, I finally looked like more towards, I guess, um, you know, towards the time of the consecration. I wasn't obviously looking at the chalices when I walked in. And I noticed that the chalices were out there. And I was like, hmm, they're all looking at me. The chalices are out there. I said, oh. And I'm thinking to myself, I wonder if they're, like, expecting me to flip out. And then they could, like, use this to kick me like out. A, like a setup, basically. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. And then me being, um, you know, like, I don't like being, I guess you could say, set up like that or treated in such a way. And, like, I don't take kindly to that. So I remember after I had told the uh, the priorist, I went up to her and I was like, I just wanted you to know those chalices. It was just so beautiful. Like, I just, like, gave it back to them. Because <laughs> I just, like, I was at a point I, I, like, couldn't take it anymore. It was constant liturgical abuses. You know, even we were in an online program that we had to do. And one of the uh, sister, I guess you could say quote unquote sisters, was not a sister anymore because that whole community left like the Catholic Church and they had like women priests. And like they considered themselves an ecumenical Benedictine community. And I remember asking my directors about it. And she said, well, they're still Benedictine. But I'm like, but why are they teaching us if we're Catholic? Like yeah. that doesn't make sense, you know? And it was just, it was just like one after the other. It was just constant, like between the liturgical abuses and, like, the fighting among the sisters and then, like, you know, and then the, how they treated me, like, ver verbal abuse, you know, emotional abuse. Like, my the first director I had would get, like, so angry over even, like, the little things. Like, her face would get red. Um, I remember one time we were having a retreat, and I was told I could do my laundry only during a certain time. I, I could only do it uh, it was a certain amount of time before, the like, the actual, like, lecture, I guess you could say, for the retreat. So I got the lecture time wrong. So I accidentally like washed, I think a half hour too soon or something, screaming and yelling, face red. Like it was unbelievable. And I was just like standing there like, you've got to be kidding me. It, it was crazy. Like that was just one example. Another example, when I came back from a retreat at another Benedictine community, 
when they had prayed the liturgy of the hours, they refused to say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They said like Creator, Redeemer, Sanctifier, oh, or something Lord. like that. And I and I wouldn't bow. I refused to bow because I'm like that's not the Trinity. Yeah. Not bowing to that because it's not the Trinity. So when we came back, and I knew this was going to happen. When we came back, I had to sit with my director during our meetings. You know, that would last like an hour. And she told me I couldn't leave the room until I explained to her why I did that. And she wanted me to cry. And unless I shed tears, I couldn't leave the room. Like I had to let it all out. Um, it, it was just, it was constant, constant, constant with that director. And then when they gave me the second director, she was not abusive, I guess you could say in the same way, but she forced me, like we would use the Enneagram and things like that. And they would assign you a number and you had to act the way your number said. And if you didn't, that was a problem. And it was literally just like one after the other. It was, and the thing is like a lot of people have asked me like, why would you stay? Why would you stay? When you have a calling and you truly feel in your heart that God is calling you to be a nun and you want to be the bride of Christ, his, you know, his bride, yeah. you endure it. Because I remember even a priest I had spoken to um, in one of our local parishes um, he had told me, he said, Christina, formation is hell. You just have to get through it. And I, so I thought what I was going through was normal. You know, mm -hmm. like, even though it was bizarre, I was like, maybe it, it, it's possible that this is how it is. Because again, this is the first time I'm in religious life. I don't know what it's supposed to be like. So I endured and I felt that, you know, if I could just put up with this, I will move on. Eventually I will be stationed somewhere and I will be able to, you know, live my life as a bride of Christ, live my life as a religious sister. But the issue is, you know, whether it was that community or the other one that I entered, you endure all of that after all the different types of abuse, and then they still kick you out anyway. Yeah. So you mentioned that the, I'm just going to call her crazy sister because it sounds like she was crazy. Um, so did she have any authority over you, or was she just another member of the community? She was just another member of the community. Um, but this sister, she actually was one of three three biological sisters and her other sister had actually entered the community and got kicked out for doing crazy things. Like she actually, her <laughs> biological sister who was a sister pushed another sister down the stairs. Um, this was like years ago and she had gotten kicked out, like banished from the community was never allowed to come back. And this sister, the one that she pushed down the stairs, actually, when I was there, she left after 20 years of being in the community, she wow. left. And when I talked to her after, um, you know, we both had left, and I called her one day and we spoke and she said, Christina, what made me, part of what made me leave is seeing how they treated you. Wow. Yeah. She yeah. goes like you, the way they treated you opened my eyes to what that community really was. Wow. That's, I, they, wow. <laughs> yeah. That says a lot for sure. Did they, did they do any psychological testing before one would enter? They did. It was completely bizarre, um, which I felt it was bizarre um, to begin with because it just didn't seem quite right. Um, I found out later, actually, because the same psychological went to the second community and I was informed by them. Cause obviously, how would I know this? She said that's the psychological they normally give to men entering the priesthood. So she said it was more detailed than they usually give to women, like it's not directed toward women. And she said also sometimes they use that psychological for married couples. Um, so she kind of actually like a little bit chuckled mm -hmm. because she thought it was so ridiculous. Um, but I remember sitting with the director uh, when I went to the vocation director. It was like a three-part, I believe, um, psychological because part of it was with the director and then part of it was with an actual like therapist that they send you to, like who was in charge of um, that in, for the diocese. He was in charge of doing the psychologists for the, the diaconate, I, I believe, and then also um, for the priesthood. And 
um, when I started off with the vocation director, and I remember being totally like just like blown away by some of the questions she was asking me. One of them, she was pretty much said um, she wanted to know if I had ever fantasized. And I remember just being totally like, oh my goodness, like, did not just say this to me? Like, this is crazy. And she said that, uh, you know, like, have you ever had dreams, you know, and explaining it? And I said, no. And then she's looking at me like I had 10 heads. She was like, you've never fantasized? And I, like, explained that it's a mortal sin. I explained, you know, why it's a mortal sin. <laughs> and then she goes, yeah. And then she goes, that's not good enough. So, like, I really wanted to be a nun. And I thought, and again... I thought maybe this is a normal part of like religious life. Like I thought it was crazy, but at the same time, I'm like, all right, if this is what you have to say, you did. So I was like, so I kind of like didn't say yes, but didn't say no, but I let her, it left it like open to that. She could, I guess, say that, oh, maybe she did. And then I remember after like, she kind of got that. And then she goes, oh, thank God, because I wouldn't have been able to take you if you said no. And I remember mm -hmm. after that going, because I was there for like a retreat for a couple of days, going back to my room, hysterically crying, calling my parents. Like I thought there was something wrong with me because I had never fantasized. Like I thought <laughs> like that was normal. Right. Yeah. I thought that was normal. And I was like, oh my goodness, like, am I doing something wrong? Like if a nun is saying that that's normal and you're supposed to do that, something's wrong with me. And it was just like, you know, I, I look back now and I'm just like, this is really sick stuff. Yeah, and and it turns out this is like I talked to other friends after, and they did stuff similar. Um, for, it's it, this is something that's done for LCWR order, so the Leadership Conference of Women Religious. Mm -hmm. That's like a normal part of the psychological, apparently. Yeah, can you imagine all the the you know religious female saints and asking them like right, like right, Saint right. Therese of Lisieux, who was like so pure, like asking her if she ever fantasized? Like it's right. just so absurd. But it's interesting because I've heard. Um, the same scenario in a lot of ways. Um, you you said this this um, type of testing, they claim to use it for priests as well. And I've heard of priests or like former seminarians saying that they also had to endure these really weird psychological tests where they are basically asked about like fetishes and <laughs> all this stuff. And when they said no, I'm I'm I don't I'm not into that. Like I'm trying to be a good practicing Catholic. They're you know, they're looked at like something's wrong with them, you know. Right. Um, so that's that's interesting. But it, it seems like it didn't help to really uh, filter out some of the people that really shouldn't have been in that order. I mean, right. were, were there other were there other sisters that were also um, seemed to have like some mental disorders? It seems like this the crazy sister um really was uh probably the most extreme right but were there other right. sisters that was the one that sticks out to me but i would say like mental illness was definitely something um that uh was kind of going was was there existed there i know uh one sister definitely the vocation director was on uh, meds she was on depression meds i believe and um quite a few of them i heard like from other sisters that others were on there and that was even a commonality with the second community too, which kind of is scary because it's almost like, so to live a religious life, you have to be on meds. Like when you really think about that, like that shouldn't be like that, but it's like to live that type of life with the abuse that it seems that mm -hmm. has become the normal part of religious life, you have to be medicated. And to me, that's sick. Yeah. So, I mean, if you, if, if you had gone to them, because it seems like the, it was such a warped, um, you know, situation for you. But if you had gone to them and said, you know, I feel depressed or I feel down or 
any anything like that, would they have been sympathetic to you, or would they have just uh, blown you off, or what? Well, that can for that community, meds was like the norm. So like they had tried to push me on meds. Like when they were the ones causing me anxiety, they sent me to a therapist. Um, it was a, the one that, I think psychiatrist, right? The other one, no, psychologist first. And then a psychiatrist. It was a psychologist first um, to evaluate me. And he was the same one that gave me the, uh, the, the pre-evaluation or whatever it was for the, to enter into the community. So they sent me back there and we went through all this stuff. We talked, whatever. And he said, you have like environmental uh anxiety he said i don't see any reason why you need medication he's like but i can see that the prior is the community really wants you on it so i'm going to send you to like a psychiatrist and you know you can get some meds so i went to the psychiatrist and uh i knew that they insisted upon that i had anxiety so i had went on the internet looked up what symptoms you need to have to have anxiety i told the therapist and there lo and behold i got the medication i needed to show them that i had so that i could stay in the community and again, all of this craziness, because I believed somehow that this must be a normal part of religious life, because what would I have to compare it to? And I wanted to be a nun so bad that I was willing to do anything to keep my vocation. I didn't want to lose my vocation. Yeah. I mean, I, I can so relate to that because, again, you run into people that are like, why would you stay? Why would you endure this? And, you know, it was always, for me, it was the same thing. Like, I thought this was my calling. I was told this was my calling and I, I so longed for it. And I just thought, you know, well, there's going to be a silver lining at the end of it. Like you said, like there's, you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to get to final profession and things will calm down. And you realize as you go through it and as you're there, like for some time that things aren't getting better. I don't know about you, but for me, it got worse. <laughs> the longer it was yes, there, the worse oh, it got. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Both communities, it just got worse and worse. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So for the first community, did you did you realize at any point that this was some sort of abuse or was it not until you entered the second community? It didn't really hit me, I think, until the night before I left. I was literally on my knees, hysterically crying my room, saying to God, I can't take this anymore. I can't take it. Something isn't right here. This doesn't seem like what you should have to do to become, you know, your spouse, you know, to become a bride of Christ. And I said, I don't want to give up my vocation. I can't do it. You have to do it. I said, you have to get me out of here because I can't do it. And the next day I was called in that morning and I was asked to leave. So I feel like when I literally hit a point that I just couldn't go on anymore, God took care of it. And I found out after when I left, um, one of the girl, the women that was there who had left, um, a, her pastor at the time, who she had also worked for, he had come to the, the convent a couple of times. And I knew him. And she had told him what was going on because she left uh, you know, before I did. Um, when she was temporary professor, I think it was like two months later or something. And she left because she couldn't take it anymore. Um, her director was being like inappropriate with her, she felt. Uh, so she left and that director was having, it seemed um, from what we observed many times that she was having uh, an inappropriate relationship with another sister there. Um, and this woman couldn't take it anymore. So she ended up leaving. Uh, but I found out later, because again, the priest was up to date because I would still talk to her. And he said, he goes, Christina, if you didn't leave when you did, I was close to like getting my car and I was going to come. I didn't know how I was getting you out, but I was going to get you wow. out of there. They were going to give you to you know, give you to me because yeah. I was not going to leave you there. Wow. Yeah. So, so you're in this first community. You you end up leaving. Um, so, how how much time passes between the first community and the second community? 
the first community and the second community, I'm trying to think. Um, it was about, I want to say, like, I believe it was about a year, maybe a year and a half. Um, and now I think back, because sometimes I get the dates confused. So I think it was, I said 2017 before. I think, believe the first community, I left 2017. That's what it was. Okay. I entered 2015. I left 2017. And then I believe the second community, then I entered 2018. That's what it was. I entered 2018. Um, so it was about like a year, a year and a half um, that I waited. Um, and they knew what I had went through the second community and they wanted me to wait. You know, even though like at that point I was like, I just wanted to like start over. And, you know, I, I was told even by the archdiocese vocation director, as long as you get a CMSWR community, they have a community life, they wear the habit, you're good. You won't have any problems. Yes. So I believed that. <laughs> I honestly believed that. Um, when I went to the community, they acted like I was like the best thing that ever came to them. They were so sweet to me. Um, the mother superior rushed even for me to like meet her. So that she, I could do the application and she could accept, like she accepted me on the spot pretty much. Like the same day I handed in the application, she accepted me with smiles and it just seemed so right. And I was like, thank God, like I'm going to have a good community finally. Like, and the day my parents dropped me off, because my father till this day still brings it up because it completely scandalized both of them. Um, they assured my parents, and I remember they looked right at my father and I said, don't worry, vocation director said to her, don't worry, we're going to take good care of, her, care of her. We're nothing like the other community. And fast forward to about two years later, pretty much the same thing happened. It was more in a behind the scenes, I guess, kind of way, because this community is abusive more like you wouldn't know. See, the first community you could be like, hmm, some of them wear the habit, some of them don't. Sometimes they're a little bit like the things they say, you could kind of pick up on something's a little off. Uh, the second community, they hide it very, very well. So unless you enter, you really, you wouldn't see it. Because so many people sing their praises, even priests sing their praises. I mean, well, the same priests that sing their praises, you know, as soon as they walk out of their convent, they're bashing them. Um, which, of course, they wouldn't know because they're not in the community. Like, I remember one of my uh, priest friends, he actually taught us liturgy and the sacraments. Um, he had just um, gotten his kind of law degree, very intelligent, you know, um, and he gave a really great class. He would even join us for dinner after the class that we would have with him. And literally almost every time he would walk out, they would start like talking about him in a bad way, in a negative way. Um, yeah, even the, the new pastor that they had gotten for their the uh, parish that they're associated with just happened to be from Staten Island. So he was a friend of mine. I knew of him. And they were all like gun-ho of getting him. And they all smiled. Oh, Christina knows him, this whole thing. And then that changed. And all of a sudden they didn't like him. Because they didn't like, you know, for example, he wanted, like, bells rung during the consecration. Like, that was too much for them, you know. Or during the epiclesis it was. Like, that was, you know, too much. Or he wanted, you know, like, uh, whatever. It was set up a certain way, which was how it was supposed to be set up. But they like to do things their way. Uh, you know, even when we were trained in the sacristy, it wasn't like how you were supposed to be taught, like, to set up the vestments, for example. It was like, well, this is how we've been doing it. This is what we're doing. And that's why they got so upset with the priest that was teaching us the liturgy and the sacraments class because he taught us the right way, not their way. And that, like, set them over the edge. Uh, so it was just, you know, it's just like you sit back and you think about these things. And that was just, like, minor, like, compared to other things that they did. You know, like, it's just so ridiculous. It's like this control that they have to have within the monastery because they feel like within the whole church, they don't have, they can't have that control. They feel because they're women. So then it's like, oh, well, let's do this little hierarchy. We could do it in our own, you know, monastery, our own convent. And, like, nobody's going to do anything about it. And nobody's going to tell us what to do. That's how my director was constantly. 
Um, you know, and it was weird because it literally, the abuse with my director, verbal abuse, emotional abuse, spiritual abuse, um, you know, all different kinds of abuse daily it didn't start until three months after I was there. Cause during those three months when I first entered, it was the most amazing experience. Like, you know, they would do some corrections, but it wasn't like intense. Well, once the mother superior met with me after three months, asked if I wanted to become a novice and I said, yes, all smiles. Then the next day it started and it didn't end the abuse by novice, by novice director until the day that I left. And then when she, when I finally sat with her and this is after a postulant had just been kicked out, they kicked her out supposedly for health. Meanwhile, they knew she was, didn't have the best of health when she came in. They had her um, measured for a habit, they had the veil and all this, had her novitiate date, this whole thing, and then they kicked her out because of illness. And I spoke to my director the day I left. I said, you know, this is what you women do wrong. And I said it exactly like that. I said, you don't want someone fine. I said, you don't drag women on who want to give their lives to Jesus, and then you just kick them out without a proper, you know, or a, a valid rhyme or reason. I said, you knew she was sick. I said, you knew she was well, and you accepted her anyway. I said, you dragged her along. And then in my case, she full out just admitted to me. She goes, I don't know why I did it, but she goes, it wasn't your imagination. I went after you for two years. Something about being around you, I just didn't have control, and I went after you for two years. I need you to forgive me. Please forgive me. You have to forgive me. And she couldn't even make eye contact with me. And by this point, it's like too little too late because I was already kicked out. And it was just like I'm sitting there and I'm like, like I'm losing my vocation that I feel deep within my heart. And I loved the community. Like if you would have taken out the abuse, I loved like the apostolate and the charism of the community I absolutely loved. Like when I got to do my apostolic experience, I was at the Cathedral Basilica of St. Peter and Paul in Philly. I loved it. It was amazing. Getting to meet with the parishioners, getting going to the, the like the nursing homes. Um, I had this amazing Ash Wednesday experience helping one of the priests out, um, going again to the nursing homes, like meeting the people, accompanying the Legion of Mary. It was just such, it was, it was beautiful. It was such an experience. And if there wasn't that abuse, and after the abusive situation with my postal director, I, I really did endure. I didn't say much. And then novitiate, because I knew I was getting a new director. And she was great, this director. And I was like, thank God. And then they gave me back the postulant director. And it was the same thing all over again, and I just couldn't take it anymore. It was constant harassment, constant belittlement, and then gaslighting, unbelievable gaslighting. Because towards the end, she had wanted me to train the postulants in the chapel duties, and I just asked her, I said, I don't understand, you know, for the past, like, almost two years, you've only told me how horrible I am in the chapel. I said, I'm not, you know, I don't do a good enough job. I said, now you want me to train them? And she says to me, that's you. You think you're not good enough. You're amazing in the wow. chapel. And I was like sitting there. And then there were so many times, like we would have conversations. Then the next day, I never had that. What are you talking about? That never happened. Yeah. I didn't say that. And I'm like sitting there. Like after a while, you start to like think you're going crazy. Yeah. You Like you really do. Oh, wow. Yes. Yeah. I encountered so much of that from my novice mistress. There's something about these orders and they want to put you with these novice mistresses that are how we're hungry and just want to manipulate you. And like you said, gaslighting. Like I didn't know what the word gaslighting meant until I started wondering, like, what am I living through? And I, I actually found out the word gaslighting while I was in the convent, you know, because I, I thought I was going insane. And um, But I knew, like, at the same time, like, something wasn't right. And, um, yeah, it's just like they'll they, – 
like saying one thing, but then turning around saying, I never said that, just unbelievable. But um, I did want to just point out, you have a very interesting story because um, the first community you were in was LCWR, correct? Yes. Okay. Yep. And the second was in the CMSWR. Yes. Okay. So for those of you who are listening who don't know the difference, LCWR, just in a nutshell, is known to be more liberal, um, and they really honestly have supported things that are really against the church um, in the last few decades. And um, there was a group of uh, religious that were in this order that were like, we can't support this, and so they broke off in the uh, 90s, I believe, correct? I believe so. And uh, created CMSWR. So usually if you see a religious order uh, that's in habit and is following the magisterium or at least claiming to follow the magisterium, that order is usually in CMSWR. Um, so it's interesting that you were in both because usually like you're in one or the other and you know, a lot of people want to look at the LCWR communities and say, um, they're the ones that are crazy. They're the ones that have gotten off the rails. They're the ones that are probably having issues with abuse. But you and your experience realize that it was both both types of communities, correct? Yes, because unfortunately there are people, you know, which includes the laity, includes priests that believe, well, you know, they wear the habit. They seem orthodox. You know, they have a solid mass, so there can't be any abuse there. But that's not the reality of it, because unfortunately a priest only knows what they show them to know. They don't enter the community. They can't know. Only us who have entered actually see the true colors of the community. And to me, that's more dangerous. It's more dangerous from the outside when they look a-okay, looks like an excellent, beautiful community, and then you enter and you're like horrified, like absolutely horrified because you're like, how can this be? Because I was told that because this community was a CMSWR community, they were a safe one. They were a good one. I wouldn't endure this. And then it feels like you just got like smacked in the face. Yeah. And I was told the same thing. I said, I was told by multiple people and, you know, and these people didn't know any better. It's just what they had been told. But um, I was told, well, if you enter a CMSWR community, you're going to be fine. Like you're good. You're going to be in really good hands, not knowing that there is just so much abuse across the board um, in a lot of these communities. And um, so I, I just, I like to point out that you experienced both types of communities and both had serious abuse issues, right? I mean, they both treated you very poorly. Yes. The worst, I have to say, was when you were sick. Um, the that, That's what I found interesting. You would think the LCWR community would not be as willing to let you go to doctors. They actually were. Um, I didn't have an issue with that. Like, even for a, you wanted to get a physical, you wanted to get an eye exam, whatever. They were totally down with that. Like, that was not an issue. Um, I found more of a problem in the CMSWR community. Like, you had to be pretty much like... Um, like that you couldn't work, you couldn't do your duties because they would not let you go um, to a doctor. They would try to find things in the house to help you, other mm-hmm. sisters' prescriptions to give you. I remember um, one night I came down, I had 102 fever, and the next morning my director comes in, she's like, oh, you know, oh, you have to stay in bed, you know, and I just felt horrible, I felt dizzy, and I wound up getting up, I got up, because 
that was expected, got up, went to mass, and I remember feeling like I was going to collapse. And I had to sit down during the mass parts that you're supposed to stand. And after mass, I remember her like walking me like out and she was like, oh, you have to stay in bed. She was like, oh, I didn't know you were going to be sitting down or everybody saw, you know, because I humiliated her. So that was where the issue is. And then after a couple of days, they took me to urgent, my director took me to urgent care. And the entire time in the examination room, that's another thing, because they have to come in there with you. That was a difference too. the LCWR. They would not go in the exam room with you. Um, The community I was in, the CMSWR one. Anytime you had to go to a doctor, a sister had to go into the examination room with you, which, yes. as you can imagine, is quite uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, so she was in there with me, moaning and groaning to the doctor that I made her sick, um, this whole thing. I mean, well, I was the one with the fever. And when we were driving home, I said, sister, I just wanted to thank you for taking me. And she turns to me, she goes, like, I had a choice. So, like, it was, she was just always hostile to me. And then we get home, and I was able to go back to be, the next morning. Um, she got up and she was like, enough. Mother mother said, enough. Get out. You're done. Meanwhile, wow. the doctor had said I had the flu and to stay in bed for at least another week. And um, totally dismissed. I remember lighting the candles, feeling dizzy. And she was like, oh, you still feel dizzy to me. And I was just like praying to God. I'm like, God, please don't let me faint. You know, right before the mass, I'm lighting mm-hmm. these candles. And I just feel so lightheaded and I don't feel right. Um, and, and then there were other times, too. I started getting like dizzy spells out of nowhere. Um, some of sometimes it was out of nowhere and then other times it was uh, for some reason I developed I always had caffeinated coffee that was never an issue for me I, like before I entered the comment always then I would start getting dizzy after drinking like caffeinated coffee again it was really weird because that never happened to me um, and I told them I was like I never had this before you know I don't know why I feel dizzy and then other times even without the coffee that I would just feel dizzy and I would I, you know I told my director and she's like oh well, we have to see if we could find anything around the house and like and I'm like you would think they would just bring it to urgent care no um, so she comes back and she has mother's prescription bottle and it was um, for vertigo, not knowing if I even had vertigo, but she's like, this is what you need to take. This will help you. Um, so the dizzy, the, I felt very dizzy, like it was bad. So I wound up taking it, but God only knows like it, whether I had it or not. I don't know what I had. Because ever since I, I left, I, I don't, obviously, I don't have that anymore. I don't have vertigo. Like I still, uh, the caffeine thing, I still can't have caffeine after I left. But I'm convinced, I think we've talked about this before too. Something in religious life, because of all the stress that you endure from the abuse, like it messes up like your system. Yeah. Like your immune oh, yeah. system, your digestive system gets completely out of whack. Yeah, because being under such severe stress, um, and obviously I'm not a doctor, neither are you, but it really does something to you. And it really, and you know, I, I know I've mentioned this before, there are a lot of cult tactics that are used in religious yes. orders mm-hmm. that are abusive. And, you know, you see again and again, when you look at cults, one of the things that they do is constantly keep you busy. Like, you, it's, a, it's a tactic so you don't have time to think. They don't want you right. thinking for yourself. So... Um, so yeah, I was just, you know, I, I know I've, I've mentioned before on my blog and my podcast and to you as well, you know, I still, I have terrible migraines and, you know, I, I almost had to beg to lay down, you know, when I had, when I had a really bad migraine and they didn't want to do anything. I told them, I said, this is genetic. My mom has it. I, I know what kind of medication I need because my mom has dealt with this her whole life and I know what medication she takes to deal with it but it's prescribed and they would not listen to me and they refused to have me go to a doctor over my migraines and you know the the strongest thing they would give me is excedra migraine 
which, you know, my migraines, you know, it, it, it does, when I have a severe migraine, it does nothing. So, um, but, you know, I was, like you said, in your experience, I mean, I was berated as well for, you know, laying down, you know, during the afternoon and, or even asking. I always hated to ask <laughs> to lay down or to rest when I had a migraine because I knew it'd be like, oh, this again, you know, type of attitude. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's just, it, it really, I, I just, uh, I remember just having all these strange, like, stomach issues and just things I've never dealt with before um, while there. And I know it was the stress. I know it was dealing with this constant sensation, this constant feeling of, you know, like walking on eggshells for sure. So it sounds like what you're saying about the these women that you lived with, these religious sisters, that a lot of them were pretty two-faced, really, right? I mean, you're saying... Oh, yeah, absolutely. You're saying that, you know, if, if a priest, like, you know, that you said this priest that came to do classes, you know, if, if they came, they would, you know, it sounds like they'd be pretty pleasant to him, to his face, right? But as soon as he left, he they would be talking bad about him, correct? Right. Even um, one of my friends would come sometimes and do a retreat. She's a consecrated virgin. And um, she would go there. They were very nice to her face. You know, the mother superior even said, anytime you want to come, come. And then, like, they would talk poorly about her, like, behind her back. Um, another, and that was one consecrated virgin, another consecrated virgin that they knew for, like, several years. And I remember she came. And um, after she had uh, left, and they were, like, mad-mouthing her, saying things about her, too. And it's just, like, you're sitting there, and you're, like, I mean, it's just unbelievable because you, like, you just wouldn't expect that from nuts. Like, I get, yes, of course, we all have a fallen human nature, but, like, I felt like it was, like, excessive there. It was constant, like, gossip and, like, like slandering people and just saying, like, negative things because even uh, my pastor had come to visit me literally a couple of days um, before I had left, which was by the grace of God because that morning... I was literally, I was at my wit's end because they were deciding if I could stay or not after, like, torturing me for a week of this. And I was, like, crying, walking, and I'm like, God, I need a priest. I don't know how I'm going to get one, but I can't do this anymore. Like, I can't take it. I feel like I'm being tortured, right? Why can't they just give me an answer? Like, I really feel like I'm called here, but, like, what they're doing is just, like, horrible. And that afternoon, my pastor showed up. Again, I didn't call him nothing, and I remember them getting, like, really upset with me. Like, they thought somehow I got him to come, but I didn't. Um, and I remember just feeling so much peace because he was there. Like, I needed him to be there, and he was. Um, so even though, like, I got kicked out anyway, I feel like it made it a little, like, a tad bit easier, I guess, just knowing that he was supportive of me and he was there for me, um, like, right before I left. But even him, um, when he had left that night for dinner, my director made, like, nasty comments about his physical appearance. And I remember holding onto the table because I was so mad because, like, she was all about looks all about looks. She always had comments about people's looks. Um, even for me, like we had, a, uh, for the habit, we became a novice. We were able to pick either a light blue habit or a dark blue habit. And I was leaning towards like, you know, at least have one light blue habit because the summer, you know, it's cool or whatever. And she said she felt I shouldn't have the light blue habit because I would be too pretty and nuns shouldn't be pretty. And the mother superior wore a light blue habit. So did the other sisters and they're ugly in it. And I would outshine them. And you can't outshine the mother superior and be more beautiful than she is because she's ugly. Like, how do you even respond? I remember, like, sitting there thinking, this is so incredibly, like, shallow. Wow. So, um, both of these communities you were in, they were both apostolic, correct? 
Um, one was considered monastic, but they weren't like they weren't cloistered, um, so they were like active monastic. Okay. And then the second community was missionary contemplative, or or you could say active contemplative. Okay. So again, you, you've you've kind of ran the gamut uh, on these yes. religious communities. <laughs> um, well, I, I you know we hear in the church so often about a vocation crisis, and you know. Um, obviously, I, I don't know what's happening in the seminaries these days. I've heard it's gotten better. But when it comes to religious orders, um, I think we both agree that, you know, they're, when, it, when they say vocations crisis, um, it's kind of like a self-inflicted vocations crisis. What would you say to that? I agree. I remember uh, one of my friends once saying it's kind of like having a contraceptive mentality. Like they know what they have to do to get vocations, but they choose to do like the wrong thing anyway, which like hinders them from having vocations that flourish. And they just keep like kicking out good vocations like over and over and over again. It's almost like it becomes like mental mind games at sport. And I've spoken to many other women that have left and they said the same thing. After a while, it seems like almost like they get excitement and joy out of like messing with your head. And I feel like what you said, yes, there's a vocations crisis. I think first is a formation crisis. And that formation crisis is leading to a vocation crisis. So can you speak more about that? What do you mean by formation crisis? In formation, um, in various religious communities, they have women in charge that either have mental um, disorders or mental issues or women that just their personality-wise, they just should not be in that position. Um, some women have a real, real issue with control and power. And the last thing you should do is put someone in charge that has a power and control issue. And there's so many wrong women that are in charge of women in formation, and they abuse them. And ultimately, either it leads the young woman to get kicked out or to the point that they can't take it anymore and they leave on their own. So that there is a definite crisis in formation, which is leading to a vocation crisis, because obviously, if women can't get through formation programs, the majority, well, there's going to be a vocation crisis, because then no one's staying. Yeah. And then, I mean, you have such a small pool of people in the church nowadays in general. Exactly. That are, are willing to do this, and, and feel, even if they do feel called to it, that they'll actually, you know, take that leap into to joining a religious order. And, you know, one of the things that frustrates me so much is that, you know, you hear these vocation um, advertisements or these little vocation speeches, and they're always like, well, if you if you do this, if, if you take this leap, you know, you ha you'll have nothing to regret. You'll just, you'll find joy and happiness. And, you know, for people like you and I, <laughs> we, we have not found that. You know, we found that we, we have, you know, taken that leap and... Um, been courageous enough to say yes to our Lord, but then um, the outcome has been to deal deal with abuse. Right, exactly. So, um, so yeah, I do think, you know, I think there would be a lot more people in religious life, you know, if, if um, you know, you, you didn't have these situations um, and, you know, I'm, I'm glad that, you know, we, you know, um, I know you've been outspoken about what has happened to you. Um, and, you know, obviously I'm, I'm trying to do my part with, um, my blog and my podcast. Um, but I did want to ask you, why do you think it is important to tell 
um, your story or, to, or for anyone to come out and, and to um, be vocal about what happened to them because um, you and I both know that we've run into people that um, this has been the case where they they know what happened to them wasn't right they know that um, they were mistreated and um, sometimes it takes them a while to come to the conclusion that they were abused but a lot of them are um, you know very timid to, to actually um, speak up about it and I also think Stockholm syndrome is a part of it too like how yeah. um, some get attached to their abuser and they even get to the point of like defending them and I've noticed that unfortunately too in some women that have left that they still you know they admit that something wasn't right but they will not use the word abuse they will not say anything negative about their experience with a particular religious community I mean, what, what are your thoughts? Why do you think that happens? I think it's hard uh, sometimes, many times, I guess, to admit the truth to yourself. Like, it's not easy to say, I entered to give my life to God, and my heart was, like, handed back to me in a million pieces. And what happened to me wasn't right. And these are supposed, um, you know, religious sisters who are supposed to be striving towards holiness, helping others to strive towards holiness. They're members of the church. And I gave my life, I gave up my job, I gave up my family, I gave up my friends to be abused, to be tortured, to be gaslit. I, it's just, when you sit back, it, it's a lot to take in. I think it's too much for some women maybe to take in. It's just too much for them to admit that to themselves. Yeah. I, I, I think, too, I, I see a lot of similarities between, you know, this this problem in the church with um, religious order abuse and um, or at least some overlap I guess I could say um, and the sexual abuse crisis with priests because a lot of people didn't want to believe what was happening a lot of people wanted to look the other way instead of dealing with it head-on and it just got worse and it got worse and it got worse <laughs> instead of people saying you know there's something going on here and it's not right and yeah I can actually say to father like you know, what is going on here? Like, you know, I, I see funny things going on in the parish, but a lot of people, they just, they didn't want to go down that road, and um, there are a lot of casualties in its path, but, right. um, I mean, what what encouraged you to start um, telling your story? I mean, what, what was the point for you where you're like, I'm going to speak out about this, I'm not going to be afraid about what people think about me by by talking about it. It's never wanting any other woman to experience what you did. I knew that I wanted, even if it was just one, I wanted to help even just one woman to know what to look out for, the warning signs, and to know that abuse is never okay. And I've had women that are discerning religious life reach out to me on social media, um, you know, via email, and ask me, what does a healthy community look like? Um, what are some of the red flags that I should be looking for in this community? Um, this I, I know you are in this particular community because sometimes uh, they'll Google our names um, to, to find out. Um, you know, if they see our names in articles or whatever, they'll Google you to see what community you are in. Because um, if you notice, I haven't said the name, or, you know, or even in articles, I don't put the names sure. of the religious communities. And, um, you know, they'll reach out sometimes and say, hey, you know, you were in this community, I see. Uh, you know, why did you leave? What happened? Uh, so again, I, I speak out, you know, I want women discerning to not 
ever enter a community and experience this. And some of them will ask me, you know, good communities, and unfortunately, I can't give them any because I cannot vouch for a community that I've never been in myself. I can't. Yeah. Um, I don't. I don't feel comfortable taking on that responsibility. Um, I don't feel comfortable leading a young woman to believe that a community is safe only to find out that they're not. Um, so I can only speak for the communities I was in and communities that I know women who have spoken to me about specific examples of abuse that they went to, went through in a particular community. But I, you know, I, if someone asks me, I, I don't really know anything about, I will not tell them yay or nay um, with regards to that community because I really can't. I just tell them, you know, what red flags to look out for and what, are signs are of an unhealthy community. Yeah, because there's so many communities out there. I mean, I, I've, I've had people reach out to me also through, you know, usually through email um, when they find, you know, one of my sites and, you know, they'll ask me about specific communities and the same thing. It's just like, I, I can't tell you, you know, I, I, I've never had anyone reach out to me and tell me specifically about that religious order um, sometimes people will, will tell me, you know, well, I was in this religious order, um, and I kind of keep that in the back of my mind in case someone reaches out. But, I mean, they're over, I think, the, the statistics that's um, in my head is like 4,000 religious There's communities. There's a lot of different religious communities, yes. Just in the United States. So um, it's really hard to kind of just say, you know, this one's good, this one's bad. Um, especially if, if you don't know anything personally about them or no one has um, come right. out publicly um, to state anything about them. So um, I did want to ask you, what, what do you think are the signs? What do you tell people if they say, okay, I'm, I'm looking at a religious community. Um, can you tell me what are some things I should be looking out for to see if this might be an order that um, has issues? Well, I let them know, first off, um, a lot you won't see, for the most part, um, even the LCWR community I was in, too, like, you know, both of them, they would prep the sisters, like, before they'd let you know, like, there were, you know, girls coming and be on your best behavior, and, you know, so it's hard sometimes to see. Uh, you won't know until you enter, and I tell them that, but there are some warning signs, like, if a community has liturgical abuses at mass, like, that would be a red flag. Um, you could see the dynamic between sisters and the relationship that they have. Um, sometimes they slip up. I remember the first community, uh, I believe it was during a, a vocation event, and two sisters got into a fight and someone threw a salt shaker, I think it's somebody else. Um, so something like that. <laughs> was it a vocation? Like, I was already in the community. It wasn't a vocation retreat I was on, because I would have ran for the hills if I would have seen that. Yeah. But it was like after the fact, like I was already in. Um, but like to look at the relationship, if you can, between sisters, because sometimes they do slip up. Like they're, again, they're told to be on their best behavior, but they're yes. human beings, right? Like we all are. Um, they can slip up. Um, so pay attention to that. Um, pay attention to if the novices, you know, the formation looks scared out of their minds. Because um, I was told, I never noticed it, but I was told after that we had this one particular sister in the second community. And other girls would be like, is she okay? She looks like scared. Because she was always scared because she had ma like major anxiety and was always afraid of getting in trouble. Her face would be like beet red and it was noticeable. Like I never paid attention. I never like, because um, I think she, I'm trying to think, she, when I was discerning, she was a novice, I think, so she didn't do as much when she was a temporary professor sister, so she seemed to be a lot more stressed out as a temporary professor sister and when I was there, so I didn't notice it as much, but when she's temporary professor, like, completely red. Um, also, um, if you see sisters that seem, like, unhealthy, like, for example, um, again, which might not be that easy to see, 
but we had sisters that would be at our Bronx convent and they would send them back to the mother house to gain weight because they would lose so much weight from being so stressed out that they needed them to get what they would say, get healthy again. And they would send them back to the mother house. So if you see like a sister that looks completely undernourished, um, she doesn't look well, right. Um, these are things that I would look out for. Yeah. I tell people, um, too, that, you know, if you see something, I think a lot of people are like scared to, when they're discerning anyway, scared to like bring up something. If they, if they have a question, you know, like they, I don't know, like, like they're going to be um, kind of looked at weird if, if they dare to, like, ask a question about what's going on in, in this religious community. But um, I, I always say that it's best if you see anything that you think is kind of weird um, that, you know, you come out and say, you know, can you tell me about what, what's going on here? Or, you know, because you don't want to deal with this, you know, six months to a year down the road. If you right. see something funny now, you really want to just get that out in the open. And if they react strangely to you or they act like, you know, how dare you ask that question? Like, right. that's on them. Like, you know, they should be open to any of your questions. Like, you're the one discerning. Um, and I think, too, I, I'd like to hear your ideas about this as well. But it seems like a lot of people who are discerning, like, and I remember this from when I was discerned, because I discerned a lot of, I was only in one community, but I discerned with a lot of communities. And it always felt to me like, like it was basically, it was a very one road street, like, you know, one way street where, you know, the religious order has all the authority, like they can ask you any questions, like they can do anything, but you're supposed to just be very, um, almost like a doormat and just like deal with like whatever they ask you or whatever um they have you do or, or any or anything like that even as you're discerning and it's like no this should be a two-way street you know this should be like you know just like if you're getting married you don't like if you're getting married you have a conversation with the one that you're you know espoused to or you're you're betrothed to like you don't like just have you know this one person that's controlling all aspects of of this relationship and it should be the same way, even starting in discernment. It should be, okay, we're having a conversation, and I'm looking into you as much as you're looking into me, not the other way around. You're, it's not just you're looking at me and deciding if I should enter. I'm also looking into you and seeing if it's worth my time and worth my health and worth my spiritual well-being to come to your community. So right. what would you say to that? Well, like from my personal experience, um, they, in both communities, they did let me ask questions. That wasn't the issue. The issue was um, that they didn't always tell the truth. <laughs> that was more my problem, which I discovered later. Um, like for the first community, I saw some red flags with um, how they celebrated mass and things like that. Uh, you know, I was I was still learning about liturgical abuses, and I hadn't yet read like the whole general instruction of the Roman Missal and Sacramentum Redemptionis. Like I didn't like that community is what got me reading all of those books because I just started seeing things that didn't seem quite right, but I wasn't sure. You know, so I would study myself and do my own research, and I taught what was proper and what wasn't, what was the liturgical abuse. Um, and I remember seeing things that just didn't seem quite right, and like, and I asked the vocation director, and she said, "Oh no, we are completely, you know." Um, aligned with the church, completely aligned with the magisterium. I asked her about like the habit situation because some sisters were habits, some sisters didn't. Oh no, we all get along. You know, it doesn't matter. 
you know, um, I actually see in years from now, like we're probably going to go back to have the habit. I see us leaning more traditional, which was the farthest from the truth. <laughs> So, like, that's the thing, too. Like, you're discerning and you're believing what they're saying because why would you think a religious sister would lie? So, yeah. like, my, I guess, like, my uh, radar was kind of, like, uh, not as much when she answered those questions because I felt like, oh, well, you know, why would I think anything else but she's telling the truth? So I said, oh, that's good because it seems like they went through whatever they went through with the changes after Vatican II and now they're starting to you know, get more, um, you know, they're getting rid of maybe some things that they were doing wrong and they're trying to correct it, whatever. But that wasn't the case at all. They were like going more and more towards like far left. Yeah. Well, in your opinion, I mean, living through all of this and living through two communities, what do you think needs to change? Like if, if like there was a, I don't know, Pope Francis said tomorrow, like we're going to have some, he like Senate, so let's say the Senate, like, have some synod on how to um you know reform religious life any invited view i mean what would what would your your thoughts be on um what what needs to change what reforms need to take place um to rid you know these convents of abuse well definitely i would start with accountability accountability and accountability because there is none for them i remember because both communities were pontifical and their answer to everything would be well the pope's in charge of us so the pope's not going to come here and say anything so you know we could do whatever we want um it was kind of like that attitude of well we only answer to the pope and he's not coming here you know he's not having anyone sent here so you know who's going to do anything about it uh also with formation I believe it's optional. That's what I was told with the second community. Um, it's looked like that when I looked at canon law, too. I believe um, you don't have to be, your name isn't submitted to the Vatican until you profess first vows. Um, they can, from what I was told, as a novice. Again, that's not in canon law. I think it's officially, it has to be um, when you're first professed, but they can. And I remember her, my vocation director, um, and even the novice director saying, oh, oh, you know, oh no, you're a novice. Like, we don't have to submit that to the Vatican. We have so many come and go. Like, they don't need to know that, you know. Um, so, that's why there's, they don't, the Vatican doesn't even have that information. So like if a community takes in 20 girls, like how would they even know they started off with 20 when yeah. there's only three by the time temporary profession? How would they even know that? Because they don't have to submit anything. Yeah. And the CARA report, which asks all those questions, is optional. Because when I was looking at the report, it's not like majority of, it doesn't seem like majority of the communities, and there's a lot of communities, fill out the CARA report. So that information, if it's not given to the Vatican, well, that takes away the accountability. The, the, the la it shows the lack of accountability. Yeah, there's a uh, there's a religious order I'm thinking of, and I, I know you probably pick up on who it is. I won't say who it is, but they love to put these posters out of all these postulants that they have oh, yes. every summer, right? Like, we have all these postulants, and um, lo and behold, you know, they only have 90 sisters and final profession they've they've been around for a while so i mean they're lo if you do the just simple math they're losing a lot of sisters but like you said they don't have to report that right like there's no one that they have to answer to and the like everyone's like uh you know radar should go up when you're if everybody knew that it was like wait a second this community is like 30 enter like yeah. you know quite a few times and only three or five stay like hmm, something's wrong here yeah. but no one's seeing those numbers because the numbers of how many leave, that's not reported. Like, that's very, like, most Catholics would have no clue about that. Because how would they know that? We know because we lived it, so we see. The time I was there, the first community, a total of uh, five sisters left, including myself. 
within two years. Wow. Two being final professed. And the second community within the two years I was there, they got rid of two postulants and an inmate, a novice. So it seems like many of these communities, from even after speaking with women that have been in them, a lot of women don't stay. But again, those numbers are keep hidden in secret. Nobody knows about that. So they could brag about these, you know, look, they have, you know, five professed sisters, final professed sisters, look how beautiful. But then they started off with 25. Like, that's a problem. But again, let's keep this hush-hush in on the down low. Exactly, yeah. Um, so, yeah, definitely accountability um, because, like you said, there's there's not a lot there. And I think a lot of, to be honest, like, I mean, even my religious order was diocesan. And, I mean, I know they had to do, like, a report and stuff every year, but, I mean, it was basically, like, and I, I mean, I've heard it, this even with, like, male religious orders. Like, the bishop has so much to do or the pope has so much to do. Like, he's not worried about, you know, <laughs> what's happening at such and such a convent, you know, and knows nowheresville, you know, America. You know, like, they're just, right. you know, they have other things on their plate. Um and I, I think confession as well, because I've um, spoken to women who have the same uh, confessor. They have the same confessor for all of the sisters. And it's like, um, it goes with accountability, you know, because if they know that this priest is hearing everyone's in the community's confessions, as opposed to, oh, we switched up, we have all different priests. No priest is really getting the big picture of it all if they're, you know, all different ones. And they're coming different times. Um, in the communities I was in, you didn't have to go to confession. Um, actually, when I went, I, I was like, I'd go, just go, and then the, another priest would come a week later. He's like, oh, you can go again. Um, the father's waiting for someone. Nobody wants to go online. <laughs> like, a lot of the sisters, like, didn't even go. Like, mm -hmm. I know my formation director did not go. Like, she did not go to confession. Because then when she finally did go to confession, like, towards the end, not too long before I left, I, that was the first time I saw her go to confession. She runs out yelling to me that her sins were absolved. Wow. Like, runs out yelling that her sins were absolved. And I'm like, yes. And she's like, they always do that? And I said, yeah, so how long was it that she didn't go to confession that she didn't know that? I remember being, like, dumbfounded. And she's like, your sins were forgiven? I said, yes. I said, as long as you have a contrite heart, the priest grants you absolution. I said, yes. And she looked at me like I had ten heads. And, like, there was another final professor, um, junior professor standing there. And she was, like, looking, like, completely perplexed that this final professor of 25 years was completely clueless on the sacrament of confession. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. Wow. You know, it just goes to show, like, you know, like, I hear, because I'm in education, right? And so I hear people all the time, like, oh, I wish the sisters were back in, in the schools. And it's like, well, you know, just because you're a sister, you know, doesn't mean, like, you're the best religious, going to be, right. the, you know, the best uh, religious teacher in the whole entire world, right? Like, obviously, uh, there can be malformed uh, religious as well. So, um, and obviously, if you're, you know, if you're treating people like crap, like, you know, within your own home, within your own convent, like, you're not really understanding the gospel me message of love right. and charity and being like Christ to others. <laughs> like, well, so it was like funny. That. The first community, um, one of their charisms, I guess you could say, was like hospitality. And I'm like, yeah, you're hot. You're, you show hospitality to the people that come here, but not to the people that live here. <laughs> yes. You know, yeah. like. Well, the order I was in, uh, they're. Their motto, and we wore it around our necks, was Semper et Ubuque Caritas, which in Latin means always and everywhere charity. And, you know, 
um, you know, you know what I dealt with. I mean, obviously, a lot of what you're saying is very similar to what I endured, and that that's not what I encountered. Like, I didn't encounter always and everywhere charity by these sisters. You know, it's, there's just such a facade of okay, this is what we do in the apostolate, and they did good work in the apostolate. I'm not going to get on them about that, but um, you know, taking care of uh, people in the nursing home and everything, but. It's like, okay, you're, you're going to give yourself so totally to, you know, that apostolate, but then you're going to turn around and be so nasty to your fellow sisters. Um, there definitely seems to be like, I, I don't know, um, I, and I know we've talked about this briefly before, but something about women, you know, and, and groups, like there's something that if, if not done the right way, that... You know, there's um, women can be really nasty to each other. Nasty and malicious to one another. Yeah. Oh yes, it's like living in a fishbowl. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you know, it's just I, I mean, the women I lived with, um, it just seemed like they were like, it was like living in high school again or something. Like they were, they were so much older than me, but they were so socially immature and just. Uh, you know, it's just dealing with, it's like, just dealing with, like, little clicks and stuff in school. Right. It's just so incredible, you know, to deal with that in a convent, you know. Right. So. Well, I know our time um, is coming to an end. Is there anything else you wanted to share? Or? Um, I guess just, you know, if anyone that's discerning listening to this, uh, keep praying to God and help him, uh, ask him for help to properly discern, um, you know, if there's a religious community you're, you're very interested in to help um, for you to see if there's any red flags, um, you know, to pray to God, to ask him to help you to see if there's anything, um, you know, that could help you to know ahead of time that this is an unhealthy community. Because again, I, I share my story, I share, you know, I write about it, I speak about it because I don't want any other woman to go through what I went through, like ever again. Yeah. Uh, and I know, you know, there are women in car- in convents right now. I'm sure enduring it. And those that feel alone, you know, if they have technology and they're able to listen to this podcast and they happen to hear it, um, to know that they're not alone. And all of the women that have left the convents, it maybe feels that the church abandoned you, um, that no one cares, that no one was there for you. Well, we have each other. We're a support to one another, and we have one another to know that um, even if no one else believes us or understands. We know the truth. We know what happened to us, and that's a support system that could be everlasting for us. Exactly. Um, and, you know, um, do, you, do you mind if I mention MGN? Oh, good. Yeah, so um, Maria, uh, Marie Ready Network um, is a support group for those who have um, dealt with any sort of abuse in the church um, and there is a chapter of Maria Gretti Network called Omi Yezu, um, which Christi- Christina is also involved with, um, and it's just for those who have been in uh, these situations where they've been in religious life and they have been uh, abused. So if you're interested, you can go to Maria Gretti Network um, and look up um, information on the chapter meetings there. So. Um, well, thank you so much, Christina, for being on here. It's, it's you know, I'm always, like, telling my own story, but it's so nice to actually 
get someone else to be like, yeah, this also happened to me, and to help people realize, like, this is a, this is a bigger issue. Because we were not in the same communities. And right. obviously we were experiencing a lot of the same things, you know. Um, um, well, thank you for having me, yeah. and uh, I'm, I'm happy that I was able to come on and, and speak about and share my story. And again, um, for those that are listening, to know that you're not alone, really to know that you're not alone. That's that's the big uh, piece here that I want us to get out of this, is that we're a support for one another, even, you know, in a world, uh, you know, especially of in the Catholic world, of the, uh, many that don't want to hear what we have to say. Great. Well, thank you so much, and God bless. You're welcome. You too. God bless.